is the cradle of humanity, but one cannot remain in the cradle forever. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. What do you think? That is special. Who said that? It was none other than father of Russian rocketry and the father of the rocket equation, Konstantin Solkovsky himself. Oh, what a ledge. Legend doesn't even come close. Doesn't even cover it. We could actually start the uh, podcast with a Konstantin Solkovsky quote every week. That sounds cool. Yeah, that might get a bit boring. Uh, so, 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 Jamie, I've, we've got a special guest with me already for what? this, for this podcast. We yeah. yeah, we've got George Russell. Oh, my God, George. Say hi, say hi, George. Hi. What's up? I'm good, yeah. George, you are a bit of a legend in my eyes because not only are you the son of Matthew, who's, you know, the co-host of the Interplanetary Podcast. Pretty re- ridiculous, yeah. But, um, you know, you're just an all-round nice guy. We've been to several museums together mm. and you like, uh, you like space too, is that right? Yeah. Why do you like space? Um, because it's everything else other than Earth. I like that quote. Can we have that, Matt, as the next <laughs> yeah. next week's intro? Space, because it's everything else that's not Earth. Now, Matt, I heard that your son uh, is going to put forward a case for not just m- us going to Mars, but scrapping that and going to Venus. Am I right? That is what we're going to do right now. We're going to have a little chat okay. about... Well, let's not do it right now. Let, there's there's a few things in the news we've got to cover first. Let's do that first. And let's do this, the news. The first thing I wanted to do was apologise because last week's rushed bit of announcement that Uh-oh. I did halfway through was slightly wrong. You made a mistake, yes. No, well, it wasn't me making the mistake. It oh. was America, uh, America Space uh, published an article saying that the Air Force had blown up the Falcon 9 stage that had launched GovSat. Remember, remember the one it. that came yeah. down and wasn't supposed to be mm. saved, but mm. was. Uh, and then I said, yeah, military jet had sunk, uh, had sunk it. It yes. turned out it, it wasn't. It was, a, it was a hired company and not the US military that sank the thing. Uh-huh. So uh, so America Space released an apology, and I thought, well, we better follow suit considering we copied it. So apologise. It Sorry, was a hired everyone. company. Sorry, everyone. So that's that's news item number one. Numero Second uno. news item that I think we should cover is that a progress vehicle was launched a couple of days ago and mm-hmm. has made its way to the ISS and I believe is docking right now. Really? Yeah. So uh, that's a bunch of supplies up there to the um, uh, up to the old international space station so that's quite cool good luck progress so uh that's up there now so unfortunately at this time of the program we don't know whether that's been successful but i'm assuming it is yeah so let's let's just go with yeah Yeah. hey yeah yeah well done the ruskies for getting that up there uh mso8 was the name of that particular progress vehicle uh this week and you'll love this one jamie because it's 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 a space one so there was a routine calibration frame of the Wishing Well Galactic Open Star Cluster. <laughs> I'm, already, I'm already happy just with that. 
Yeah, made by the Long Range Reconnaissance Imager, or Lorry. Lorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was made on December the 5th, and that camera is on board the New Horizons spacecraft, making it the furthest image ever taken from Earth. So it's, it's an image that's been taken furthest ever taken from Earth. So uh, even further than any of the Voyager images. And so it took that image, now that the New Horizons spacecraft is at 3.79 billion miles away. It's ridiculous. Or 40 times, or 41 times the distance of sun to the Earth. Oh, my head hurts already, and we've only been talking Too many five numbers. minutes. Yeah, so only the fifth spacecraft to uh, leave the outer planets. Hmm. Uh, but on the December the 9th, it carried out the most distance, distant course correction manoeuvre ever. Mm-hmm. So it's the first time that a spacecraft has done a course correction at that distance. And, uh, and of course, it was the first um, spacecraft to photograph uh, the Pluto system. It was. Uh, and that was way back in July 2015... And right at the end of this year, or January the 1st, 2019, it will get to MU69, which is another billion miles further out <laughs> than Pluto. And, oh, and, it's not, and, it, and it's not even left the Kuiper belt. So that's how big the solar system is. That's it just how keeps big space going is, on yo. and on. And, and the Kuiper belt's nowhere near as big as the Oort cloud. What? Oh, God. The solar so, system yeah, needs to go on it, a diet. It's just ridiculous. It does. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there we go. Now, now, another really funny bit of news was, uh, did you see Richard Branson's reaction to Falcon Heavy launch? I did, on CNN. CNN, yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm, a, li- I'm a little bit jealous. <laughs> no. Doing his. No, uh, what's, the, what's the safe word to say? I think it's just no shit, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> apologies <laughs> you can beep that out but i mean yeah of course of course he's jealous but i i thought it was very interesting that he said virgin galactic would be very disappointed if it didn't launch into space with people in the next few months excuse me did you say months months is that months mm. in elon time no yeah. it's months in branson time. time which is what is that how much yeah, I, and Elon Musk. I hope Branson Branson's month. not getting himself in a pickle here. <laughs> I think that's uh, yeah, that's that's very eager. I, I just hope that what look, I'd love for it to be in a few months, as would lots of people. But it just needs to be realistic, and it just needs to be safe. We've yeah. all learnt those lessons. It definitely needs to be safe. Mm. Uh, there's a couple of launches coming up this week. There's uh, there's a Long March 2D uh-huh. carrying just some Earth Observatory for China. But a little bit later, after the day after that, should be a Falcon 9 launch. Now, what's interesting about this Falcon 9 launch, it's from Vandenberg for one, uh, but it's carrying two microsat 2a and microsat 2b which are built satellites that have been built by spacex now what are these satellites these are testing satellites for their enormous uh internet constellation their mega constellation the mc yeah wow. so uh 
this is where they're starting to stick stuff up just to prove that they can, you know, do certain types of technologies. Mm. Uh, it's going to be really very, very interesting of uh, uh, of how that pans out. Uh, and everyone's bogeyman, Mister Ajit Pai, Ajit mm-hmm. Pai, Ajit Pai, Great who name. was <laughs> was the guy that everyone hates because he killed net neutrality. Ajit mm. Pai, bless. He 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 is pushing for SpaceX to get their uh, mega constellation approved by the Federal Communications Commission. Mm. So so the FCC want to approve that and just get on with it. Can't we just send him up to space? It's complicated. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> You'll need is. some form of permission from from some other federal agency. Do you think yeah. it's a uh, good adv- good advice to uh, follow advice from Ajit Pai? Like I've said before on this podcast, I think that that net neutrality thing is an unbelievably complicated issue that became extremely polar very very quickly. But anyway, back to SpaceX. 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 So SpaceX is one of 11 companies that followed OneWeb in asking for permission to set up these enormous um, constellations mm. that OneWeb are going to launch its their first 10 satellites in May on an Ariane Space Soyuz, the Europeanized Soyuz, but they will be working operational spacecraft. So OneWeb have actually started building and soon to be launching their enormous mega constellation. That is exciting. OneWeb's first constellation will consist of 900 satellites. Just <laughs> Soyuz, the 900. Just the 900s. And Soyuz are launching 32 satellites every 21 days throughout 2019. Won't this cause a space junk problem? It will cause a space junk problem. I mean, 900 is a significant uh, mm. percentage of, yeah. of the satellites already up there. I mean, it's mm. as if it's already... Not filled with junk. That's, but but not only are, so not only a OneWeb putting up nine hundred, but that's that's not even the start of it. That's that's the that's the first bit of it. As in, they're going to be putting way way more up than that. So this first part should deliver five hundred megabit internet connection in twenty twenty one. But when they get the second generation constellation up, it should go up to 2.5 gigabits per second high-speed internet for the entire globe. How fast do we need the internet, for God's sake? <laughs> as fast as possible. Do you know what I mean? I want to watch at least three videos at the same time. How am I supposed to do the research for this program <laughs> if I can't watch I can't watch three space feeds at the same time? I want to watch every single channel on the TV at once. You guys yeah. are just... I mean... On demand. I don't want to do it on my you mobile just, device. Yeah. You just want too much. I think we should go back. We should we should take inspiration from the Amish. You know, just... Can everyone just chill out? Roll it's it There's too much going on. Roll it back. That's so there we do. go. That's what they do in Asda. So there we go. This it's it's the, It started. The uh, massive mega internet constellations have started. And I thought that's that's... Definitely worth an interesting little side note. Well, I'm not happy about it, but, you know, I'll let it go. I do uh, urge everyone to have a look at uh, Jan Werners. He's the, the head of the European Space Agency. Mm. He, he had a little blog recently uh, about what Europe should be doing uh, in terms of technology and where to go next and everything. That 
is a really interesting read. It's basically Falcon Heavy has seemed to have stirred things up there because it's like we better seriously start looking at disruptive technologies and and, uh, making sure that Europe stays to speed with the rest of the world. Well, we should put that link up. Yeah, no, absolutely. So that, that is definitely worth looking at. Check it out. Later on in the programme, I'm going to be playing my talk with David Baker as well. I do a, a slightly deeper dive into Falcon Heavy. Yes. Uh, that's a really, really interesting chat I had with David. We cover Falcon Heavy and what what that really means. It's quite surprising. There's a It's... It's a, it's a really interesting chat. There's some great bits about the military use of mm-hmm. uh, Falcon Heavy, um, but some really good talking points. We also have a quick look at the NASA budget, of course, that got released this week. Yes. Uh, and we have a quick chat about that. I mean, the long and short of it is that the budget stinks, mm. but, but will it ever get through? Uh, listen to my discussion with David Baker and, and you decide. Who knows? Coming up. There's a great quote in that. So He's going to be a regular guest. It's going to be a regular guest giving us the, the latest scoop on, uh, uh, on articles that will be appearing in Spaceflight magazine a, uh, a few days later. Because uh, uh, Spaceflight is a monthly uh, Spaceflight magazine dedicated to Spaceflight and aeronautics. And we're going to get the scoop on a little story each month. If you it's don't know it. Very exciting. Get involved yeah so that's been it's 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 all singing all all dancing uh, uh updated version of spaceflight magazine which is truly excellent so yeah it's very worth uh hunting down and getting a copy it's on its way up so let's get on to our little featurette then let's do so, it george, so george we're going to be talking about and you wanted to do this because you're obsessed with it and i, and I just couldn't let it go on any longer Venus versus Mars. So let me just put a bit of background to this. Currently, there's no manned missions to Venus in discussion at all, which you think is odd when you consider that Venus is 14 million kilometers closer. That's 8.7 million miles to us Brits and and Americans to the Earth (laughs) than Mars. Uh, and Venus once was habitable, just like Mars as well, and it's got the same gravity as Earth. Am I? Am I not? Am I? Am I right? In fact, it's called Earth's twin. That's so what? So, go on then, George. Tell me why you think we should be having a manned mission to Venus and why it's why it's even possible. Go. Okay. So the first reason people don't really want to go to Venus is because the surface is. Uh, ex- well, it's, it's impossible to live on. There's uh, acid, uh, incredible temp- uh, temperatures and pressures. It's just impossible to live there. So it puts loads of space companies off going there. However, 55, 55 to 50 kilometers up, uh, strange things start to happen. So number one, it drops to 70 degrees Celsius or 158 Fahrenheit to American listeners. Um now, that may seem like a lot, but firefighters can withstand 2,000 degrees Celsius or 3,600 Fahrenheit in their suits. Um, not, not only is uh, this true, but there's a thicker atmosphere, so no meteorites or radiation. And because the uh, gravity on Venus is pretty much the same as Earth, it's 0.9 Earth Gs versus 0.4 Gs on Mars, um, 
you'll lose less bone mass and so you're less likely to die on the planet. Because in zero Gs, you lose bone mass 10 times the rate of someone with advanced osteoporosis. So, although Mars has some gravity, you can expect a lot of bone loss and uh, it's not going to be nice. And if you want to increase the gravity of Mars, you'd have to add mass to it. And that's just... You may as well build your own planet. If... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, that, that that's pretty convincing. But I've got... Here's, here's my point against it is... The whole purpose of going to another planet for me is is to check that Robert Robert Zubrin thing that he wanted to check was where's the fossil record for for bacteria? There's some really interesting science to be had on the surface. As in, could we could we do any proper science about was there life on Venus on Venus now or or what? Definitely well, not. I mean, but, let's look. Let's look at. Let's look at who's been there already. And I'm talking about, have you heard of Venera 5 and Venera 6, guys? Probes that were crushed by high crushed. pressure while crushed. still 18, 18 kilometers above the surface imploded. Following landers, Venera 7 and Venera 8 succeeded in transmitting some data, but this was only after a single hour. Yeah. So not much Just, we can do on the surface. On the yeah. surface, 92 atmospheres pressure. Mm-hmm. That's enough to crush a military-grade sub. And melt yeah. lead. And melt lead, yeah. In fact, it's much hotter than melting lead point, which is yeah. 327C. It's 450. 450. In fact, it, it gets up to 500 degrees C in places as well. Yeah, so the surface is basically out of bounds. But what, did yeah. George, you, you, would you be happy living on a cloud city? I mean, it sounds cool, but... I mean, yeah. We uh, could do that anywhere, couldn't we? Well, the problem with Mars is that, although it may seem fun to, you know, live on the surface, eventually your bones will start to deteriorate. Uh, it's just not going to be fun. And you'll get cancer from the radiation. Your base will be destroyed by meteorites. Uh, it, although it seems like a good idea to just explore for maybe a couple days or years for a long-term colonization and a long-term settlement you need to go to venus or else there's not much point here's a question for you if cloud cities were so easy why don't we have cloud cities on earth because we don't need cloud cities on earth but but if we were going to go to venus we do need to live in a cloud city yeah but that, and yeah. also it's much easier to build a cloud city on Venus because the the at 50 to 55 kilometers because it's all carbon dioxide you can fill a balloon with just air regular air oxygen and it will float so but here's a question for you uh, how long is a day on Venus it is well, I have written written down somewhere 250 days now i have a solution to that no 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 it's actually 116 days Oh, okay. Well, a full revolution takes 250. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what I meant. The daylight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the day, yeah, 116 days for a day. and, and Yeah, and then that's the a rest long is, day. Yeah, it's rubbish. But I have, there's a solution to that. So if you're living in a cloud city, you're not tethered to the ground. And because winds are really strong on in the upper atmosphere of Venus... Because the sunlight's moving so slowly around the surface, you can propel yourself around the planet at the same speed the sun's going around. 
So you can basically follow the sun as it moves. And so you can always stay on the day side using the wind. Okay, but that's George, not... what about plant growth? What about water? Do we need to think about those? Uh, well, the f- atmosphere is filled with carbon dioxide, which is what plants breathe. Mm. Um, so growing plants there would be much easier than growing plants on Mars. And because the gravity is similar, plants will have a better chance of living as well. well. what about water? Where, Where are we going to get the water from? Well, the sulfuric acid and the carbon dioxide could be mixed together to create water. So you can have a water supply from that. What about if we used greenhouse gases to heat up Mars over a long period of time, which would make the atmosphere thicker, and eventually it would heat up Mars so much that the ice on Mars would melt, causing oceans? What do you think about that, if I threw that into the mix? Because that won't, that won't increase the gravity, and that's what's causing... Yeah, but do we know exactly what would happen? We, we haven't sent... We, I mean, we, we think we know what would happen to our bones, but, you know... What well, about if, if we just worked out like they do on the space station? A couple of hours a day. Even even no if you're problem. working out, your your bones and muscles still deteriorate. And uh, although it's still some gravity, uh, if you're going to live there for your, the rest of your life, your your bones will start to deteriorate. Even if it's going slowly, then it will still eventually just completely go. Like, it's an interesting point. <clears throat> what do you think, Matt? Well, I'm not sure that that's true. I, I think it's not being tested at it what, what uh, small amount of gravity. It might be that the bones lose their density to the point where um, it's, it's good enough for the Mars surface and that's it. So mm. the density mm. will stabilise at the point where it becomes uh, good enough to hold your body weight on the Mars surface. So that, that might be fine. It just means you'll never be able to go back to the Earth again. Yeah. But on Venus, you're saying that you've got to sort of stay in these cloud cities. You can't go down to the surface and do geology. And let's face it, one of the things that excites people about going to new planets is to do, get feet on the ground, do geology. But what would stop you from... That might help the Earth. What would would stop you from dropping a probe from your cloud city onto the surface? It has less time to drop, so... The pressure... You can, add, you can add more shielding and things like that, and you can do geology from that. Yeah, mm. true. Now, I think that there's definitely a case here that, that Venus has been unbelievably ignored as a planet. Yeah. And, I, and I do think that, 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 that we should be spending more time having a look at Venus. After all, there's some really, really exciting things about it. Well, now, NASA, NASA did look into it. I was reading up about, yeah, have a, you know... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Do you know about Havoc? Yeah. Havoc, yeah. Not a great bit Hey, do you want to join Havoc? That's all you need to know. That's <laughs> all you need to know, George. <laughs> they, they, the clue's in the title. <laughs> yeah. Well, the funny thing is, when I, when I was helping out uh, NASA with Havoc, I got really, really <laughs> sweaty, and uh, I came in and Loretta said, I reeked of Havoc. Oh, God. George, I know that you're next to Matt. Could you just yeah. give, hit him with something heavy, please? Okay, yeah, I'll try. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Uh, um, so here's a question for you. Why doesn't Venus have a magnetic field? And, and because Venus doesn't have a magnetic field, why are we protected f- from the radiation? Oh, because it's, because it's atmosphere. Okay, but why doesn't Venus have a magnetic field? Because it's not spinning, fa- the core's not spinning fast enough. That's right, yeah, because it's, because it's just but, not spinning fast enough. Mars doesn't have a magnetic field either. 
Yeah, but but that's because it's cooled down. Yeah. So this core's sort of solidifying. But Venus still got a, a liquid core, but it's not spinning fast enough. And the weirdest thing, get did you know this, Jamie, that Venus is spinning the wrong way? Well, what's the right way? Did you know as well that uh, ESA's Venus Express spacecraft found that Venus has a trail of hydrogen and oxygen atoms that are being blasted away from the planet by the sun's solar wind? So Jeez, every second, there are 2 to the 10 to the 24 hydrogen atoms streaming away from Venus. That's a lot. Because it's not protected from yeah. the solar st- from uh, uh, solar winds. Mm. Neither is Mars. Well, Mars definitely isn't. So you're, the, the, the main objections you've got to Mars are gravity and uh, radiation protection, right? Yeah. I think that the radiation protection actually isn't that hard to deal with. I think, I think you're right with the gravity thing. I think the gravity one's a great... Yeah, you may one. as well just build yourself another planet. <laughs> yeah, because you can't, yeah, you can't geo, <laughs> geo-engineer more gravity easily. What do you think, Jamie? I'm going to work on it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to let you know next week what my calculations are. I'm going to, I'm going to solve that problem. Yeah. Uh, and I also think, actually, that there is one very good point here. Maybe you should go to Venus to experiment on removing greenhouse gases on a mass worldwide scale mm-hmm. so that you can actually practice those skills so because that we can work all, out how to save our own planet. All Venus is, is just Earth, but with a run, runaway ve- greenhouse effect. So if we learn about greenhouse gases and things and global warming, we can apply that to Earth and fix global warming. Oh, oh, I George, totally George agree. I've got an idea. Are you yeah. ready for this? Mm-hmm. This is going to blow your mind, and this is going to solve both our problems. Okay, you ready? What we're going to do is we're going to build a little vacuum on Mars, and we're going to make it so long that it's going to suck the greenhouse gases out of Venus... Yeah. Into Mars, heat up Mars, thicker atmosphere, water on the surface, and by then I will have sorted out gravity. Done. Job done. Wow. Okay. Okay. I'm on on the Mars team now. That's it. Well, we can be on on both teams. Yeah. Yeah, we just need a bit more money. Let's take a vote. Right. Where should we be habitating? Should it be habitating? Is that right? Is that is it, are you talking yeah, about exploring or colonizing? I'm talking about colonizing. So Venus, I would say. Jamie, I'm afraid I'm going to have to stick to my guns and go with Mars. Sorry, George. I I'm going to go with Mars because you can get your feet on the ground. That's but it. however, so, I so would love I would love to go to Venus and I would love us to go to Venus and you know, do some more experiments and and just see if we can build a probe that could withstand uh, apparently i read the pressure george is uh, the equivalent to all oh, experience under a kilometer of water that's a lot yeah that is a lot but you know what i'd like us to go there if we can afford it let's go to both matt yeah i no. think plus plus we get to live out our star wars dreams on cloud city with yeah. Lando Calrissian. Venus is highly volcanic, so there must be some lava tubes that we can hide in down there. You reckon? I think living in the sky still seems better. It's one bar and the same temperature and whatever pressure as Earth. You truly belong with us up here on the clouds. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, and- so listeners, do you think that Jamie and I have needlessly bullied George 
or do you or do you think it's Mars? Let us know, and that that would be brilliant, and we'll we'll let everyone know what the what uh, our listeners thought next week. Yeah, let us know your thoughts. Uh, thank. Uh, I've got one. I've got one little Mars fact that I thought was uh, really, really cool. Go on. So the atmosphere is so thin that the the heat of the sun escapes Mars very, very easily. So Mm. if you stand on the surface of Mars at the equator at noon, it feels like spring at your feet, i.e. 24 degrees Celsius at your feet. But at your head... It feels naught degrees Celsius, so like winter. So it's spring at your feet, winter at your head, because just because the the the, the heat escapes so easily off the. So what you're saying, Matt, is you would be dressed in flip flops, <coughs> flip flops and a woolly hat. It's exactly right. Flip flops and a big whoosh Russian hat. It's a good look. Yeah, yeah. It's a that, new look. I'm calling it the Mars Fashion Week look. Anyway, thank you very much for joining us, George. Thank uh, you, George. Yeah, let's do it again. Yeah. Yeah, let's do this again. You, you come up with another crazy suggestion and we'll say, is it Mars or is it Venus? Normally we say, is it the moon or is it Mars? But no, no, is it Venus or is it Mars? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you, George. Yeah. Thank you. So, Jamie. Um, yes. I talked to David Baker this week, so I think it's about time that we played that interview. What do you let's reckon? Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Écoute. I'm joined again by David Baker, who's joined me to talk about Falcon Heavy and have a little bit of a closer inspection about what Falcon Heavy means. Uh, hello, David. How are you? Hello, Matt. I'm absolutely fine. Good to talk to you again. Did you see the launch and uh, <laughs> what were your feelings about it? <laughs> it was absolutely amazing. And I thought the atmosphere and the mood, I mean, you couldn't choreographed that uh, scene at SpaceX Mission Control better than it came across spontaneously on the media waves because there was just such a gut-wrenching enthusiasm and an abs... I mean, the commentator, who was a spacecraft engineer herself, could hardly be heard above the whoops and the screams and the roars behind, and that just, I think, I think infused people with a tremendous sense of can-do spirit, and, and it just completely brought it, if, if you'll pardon the phrase, down to earth as, as, as a real, real moving possibility to begin the really serious job of deep space exploration. Do you think that uh, Falcon Heavy really does uh, signify a sea change moment, and if so, how so? I think the sea change moment is largely tangential, because One of the most important things about Falcon Heavy is the fact that it has demonstrated the capability for a commercial company to be able to equal the best of the rest and to demonstrate a capability for much less financial investment by going the faster, cheaper method than can be now attained by big, top-heavy government bureaucracies, which, unfortunately, NASA and, to a certain extent, other space agencies in, in, in the world are becoming. But the, really, the real grounding analysis of Falcon Heavy is that it has missed its market, it's going nowhere, it's never going to carry people and Elon Musk has already shut down further development of this rocket. 
<laughs> yeah, so, yeah, in which case, I mean, I've, I've actually started to, to hear this argument that SpaceX had used their own money and building a rocket that no one asked for and nailed it on the first launch and, and the, that it gives SpaceX a, a, a place to sort of build from in terms of their credibility uh, yeah. uh, with, with the American government, I suppose, more than anything. Is, is, that, is that a fair analysis? Yes, it is. And I think perhaps just a fast track on, on a little bit of history about Falcon Heavy. By Elon Musk's own admission, it's been the most complex headache of a project he's ever started in his life. And it's cost them virtually half the amount of money that they've spent on their entire space operations and activity. The Falcon 9 series, which, are, which arguably is the most go-to rocket now in the world, it's, it launched in 2018 more rockets than the United States launch, uh, other launch vehicles and Europe launched combined. It had 18 successful launches. That cost $400 million to bring to market as a commercially viable and highly bankable project. And it has got years ahead of it. Now, SpaceX was formed um, around just after the turn of the century, 2002. And by 2004, there was already planning for this Falcon Heavy. And Elon Musk admits today that it was naive on his assumption that you could simply demonstrate a single-stick Falcon 9 and then strap three together and make it a heavy. And he said that the challenges that he has faced with that have been far greater than any other project that he's encountered. Now, the market for Falcon Heavy was going to be the big satellite commercial market into geosynchronous orbit. And round about 2010, 2012, it seriously looked as though that was the way it was going to go. And then the market moved on. And where Falcon Heavy was supposed to fly in 2012, it was six years before it did actually get off the pad. And by that time, its natural market that it had been designed for has completely gone now. So along the way, in the last five years, when Musk himself had tried three times to get the company to cancel Falcon Heavy, they morphed over and threw the certification for the basic single-stick Falcon 9 for carrying national defense payloads, has come a unique opportunity to use Falcon Heavy specifically for highly classified military payloads. Mm. Now, there is a technical capability, which he demonstrated, because if you cut through all of the drama, the excitement, the clapping and the whooping of the actual ascent and the launch and the trajectory, the profile that this launch vehicle flew was one which was unlike any other launch vehicle in the past. It used its upper stage to dwell within the Van Allen belt on a lingering trajectory in a transfer ellipse toward geosynchronous orbit. Now, that tested, and, that, and, and the reason that was done was to test a very, very advanced suite of avionics and electronics, which normally would never be carried in a launch vehicle because it would fast fly directly through the Van Allen belts and spend only a few minutes there. But he spent a whole orbit going around in the Van Allen, in the dense regions of the Van Allen belt. Now, this is required for a very certain type of classified national defense payload system, which has been developed by the United States Intelligence Services in order to carry into orbit on an evasive ascending trajectory. 
so that it can manoeuvre out of tracking range in order to evade the destination that will eventually reach. And there's no other launch vehicle that is capable of doing that. So while he's lost the commercial market and while he says all development of Falcon Heavy has now stopped, he's banking it just as a can-do vehicle on its own just for that. He's abandoned all plans of carrying any astronauts on the Falcon Heavy. It will not do that. He's rescinded the offer of carrying tourists around the moon and back. He's not going to do that. And Falcon Heavy is specifically for this incredibly fascinating and unique military mission. I heard that the six-hour coast that it did was a demonstration to the USA Air Force um, that it could, uh, because it can uh, Falcon Heavy can now cover nine of the reference orbits. Is that is that correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah, but that's the first I'd heard about the uh, why it went because I knew it would lingered in the Van Allen belts, but I didn't realise that that was the reason why. It's always been the case that commercial providers have attempted to get through that belt as quick as they can because you don't want to to bulk up the stiffening on the electronics and the avionics because there's no need to because it's not going to stay there. But mm. for the military mission, there's a very different requirement and there's no other vehicle that's been able to demonstrate it can do that. Now that Falcon Heavy exists and it's pretty cheap, I mean, it's unbelievably cheap really for a, for a heavy lift yep. vehicle, uh, yep. will a market come into an into existence or do you think that that market will just never happen so it's it's a build it and they will come or build it and they won't come question i think it was a case of build it and they will come when it was originally conceived and the market was 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 uh, clearly moving in the direction toward satisfying the manifest requirement to get back all that they'd spent on falcon heavy because while falcon nine uh while falcon nine uh cost the company 400 million musk has spent over half a billion on the development of falcon heavy he'll never get that back and in a way it's a calling card it's a demonstration of capability but the only reason that they kept going was because there was this unique air force requirement and this and 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 the decision to keep pushing on the development of falcon heavy two to four years ago was right in that slot when they were seriously competing and and nobody had ever done this before to break the monopoly of united launch alliance with the deltas and atlases Hmm. and it, it it is that category there that he's bust wide open and is already launching highly classified defense payloads and there have been some very interesting yeah. launches <laughs> recently with with one that we with we don't quite know where it went <laughs> no i mean do you have any thoughts on zuma and what the heck happened to it did it do you think it actually happened or didn't happen i've got i've just i can't work zuma out at all it's very interesting that we have moved to a technical capability let's put it this way around that where previously there were spacecraft and satellites as sleepers put in orbit in order to be switched on in the event of a major global confrontation which required the use of strategic national assets, including nuclear weapons, that these pieces of debris lookalikes would suddenly be switched on as live satellites. And and also there um, is the space version of what they call in aircraft avionics open architecture avionics, where you don't actually need to have all the components and the parts of an operating system physically linked to each other. So in the past, there have been space debris which has been 
used to hide sleepers, components of a spacecraft which can electronically link across distances and form the capability of a single observable um, photographical uh, satellite itself. And we're moving through that development from aviation, from aircraft, because now intralinks on aircraft mean that you can make the convergence of a whole squadron of aircraft or a whole cohort of flying warplanes uh, operate as though they are a single entity. And so that was done in space in the event that, that strategic requirements needed you should satellites be knocked out by anti-satellite systems, the sleepers would light up and form a satellite, not physically come together, but electronically link and connect over distances in space. The next generation now is to create a system where you can actually disappear the payload and um, not through, through any <laughs> supernatural ability to duplicate the invisible man, but rather to have evasive maneuvers. Um, and, and this has been tested and used by, by rocket folks for decades now. And, and it began with the Russians with their fractional orbit bombardment system where they would put a vehicle into a suppressed trajectory so that it, it, it would go into partial orbit and then be deorbited with its nuclear warhead over the target and would come in right under the radar that was used to looking for highly lofted trajectories when nuclear weapons were thrown on ICBMs. Your typical ICBM will hmm. go almost a thousand kilometers out, whereas a suppressed trajectory can hug the outer atmosphere about 100 kilometers um, and come in under the radar. So, so lots of tricks in terms of how you use rockets and, and how you use propulsion systems have evolved. And this has all the characteristics to me. And, and, and I know that people infinitely more profound at spacecraft tracking than I am um, are wagging a finger and saying, do not discount that this thing did not reach orbit. Do not assume it came down in the ocean. It may be somewhere. We just don't quite know where at the moment. Crikey. Yeah, <laughs> that really is interesting, isn't it? Um, yes. <laughs> back, to, back to Falcon Heavy. Um, yep. I, did, I did read one uh, interesting market that could open up, and that was SES satellites had been talking about uh, their new uh, geostationary um, satellites would be h sort of half the size that they are now and that you mm. could fly them uh, up four stacked for example um, mm. together and fly mm. them and therefore Falcon 9 would be almost the perfect vehicle for that wouldn't it four two ton satellites stacked together would that work? Yes, I think it would. I think that's a very good application indeed and not to say that there won't be commercial slots and opportunities, um, but not in the way of the standard Falcon 9. The, 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 the ability that Falcon Heavy has <clears throat> is to use its enormous grunt power to be able to loft into geosynchronous altitude and velocity a whole stack of satellites with that stage, and then for the stage still to have energy in it to be able to restart and position satellites at various locations just below geostationary orbit and using electric propulsion to then nudge them into their proper and appropriate parking slots so yes that does exist um but that's that's a minimal capability mm. that might come as a side lobe on the main thrust which which musk himself has said and 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 uh he has said that he that after the block five falcon nine gets operational later this year 
all research and development on the existing single-stick Falcon line is, is over. There is certainly no more money going into the development of Falcon Heavy, and it's all going into the big Falcon rocket, the BFR. Mm. Um, which which is the one that now he's getting so excited about um, that is totally consuming in terms of rocket propulsion all of the attention of SpaceX. This successful launch of a of a, of a heavy lift vehicle by a commercial company that they built with their own money is this a nail in the coffin for SLS? Because that was one of the arguments for SLS that no commercial company could build a heavy lift vehicle. Surely this is this is a pretty big nail in in that argument's coffin. How does that play out? I think Falcon Heavy does have a future role that is not yet realized because it it is still somewhere in the future. I don't think Falcon Heavy in any way compromises the Space Launch System. Space Launch System is committed already financially by Congress and by the White House as being the heavy lift vehicle, which still is capable of lifting almost twice the capacity of the Falcon Heavy. Remember, the Falcon Heavy uses relatively low specific impulse propulsion systems and very conventional technologies with regard to the propellants. Mm. Remember as well that the kind of flights that we're seeing now mean that the central core of a Falcon Heavy will likely be expendable because it required so much redesign that it's a completely different stage, the core, even though externally it has the same dimensions. So the econometrics of Falcon Heavy, when used for comparison against the Space Launch System, Space Launch System is infinitely more efficient because, apart from the boosters, it uses hydrocarbon propellants and will in both of those stages. So it's, it's capable of lifting more, much more, and while... The Falcon Heavy is really only the third super heavy rocket category. Super heavy rockets are capable, in in the official categorization of what these words imply, of lifting 49 metric tons or more into low Earth orbit. Um, And there have only been two preceding ones, Saturn V and Energia. And, of course, Saturn V was the most powerful, and that used hydrocarbon fuels, cryogenic fuels, in the upper stages, and that was capable of um, lifting 140 tons Mm. into low Earth orbit. And that vehicle flew only 13 times. Energia, capable of placing 100 tons in low Earth orbit, which which only flew twice, and only placed a satellite into orbit, which was the Mm. Buran shuttle, on one occasion. And that was 100 tons into low Earth orbit. So Space Launch System, with its 70 metric tons and then 130 tons, I think this does fill... It does allow... Falcon Heavy to occupy a very, very important niche, but it's only half the lift. Hmm. Space Launch System can still provide the big grunt to lift an Orion plus a Deep Space Gateway module. Falcon Heavy, if it has a role, and and the interesting thing is that under uh, under the noise threshold that's been heard coming from the White House associated with the new NASA budget for 2019, which is supposed to be effective from October the 1st this year, but but won't be because there'll be so much arguing in Congress over this that it won't be settled by then. 
um, in the present budget, there's an emphasis and an expectation that after a determination to shut down the space station in 2024, there will be considerable amount of resources both to to expand the flight rate of the space launch system and also to support the commercial companies, which will be doing for the deep space gateway around the moon and the commercial moon lander, which in the new budget proposed is being offered to the commercial contractors to develop, no doubt with government subsidy because they can't possibly do it on their own. There's no money in moon landers yet. Um, that these heavy launch vehicles from the commercial sector, and, and we're talking Falcon Heavy, but then, of course, there's Bezos coming along and there's mm. New Glenn, and, and there's all of those other heavy launch vehicles which will trip over into the super heavy category. They will be be so crucial for providing the infrastructure. And just as Space Station has been supported by the commercial lift for logistics and hopefully from next year crews to the Space Station, the back and forth and the regular trucking routine, the old Conestoga wagons of the migration west in America in the 1980s will be represented by the commercial companies that we're seeing emerge right now. But the real big stuff, the really big stuff, there's just no commercial need to develop something of the capacity of, of, of the SLS um, for a commercial company because the uses are going to be so infrequent. So with all the invested money that's gone by the taxpayer into, in, into SLS, this by no means pushes the commercial people out it creates a space program sls which needs the commercial heavy lifters to routinely at very low cost keep going applying back and forth whether it's between here and lunar orbit or here and mars yeah so when if musk actually gets his bfr built and let's yep. and let's say he will because everything he yep. said he's going to do he has actually <laughs> delivered he has done. Uh, um bfr falls into that category of being up there with sls though doesn't it isn't that that's got some projected things of 150 tons and 250 yep. tons if it's expendable into it, how how would that fit in i mean why why would musk even build it if the BFR, because I'm <laughs> I'm struggling on that point. I have the feeling that that BFR is going to come out slightly different to the way it is being trailed at the moment. One of the big commercial um, economic arguments for BFR has focused on the fact that it can be adapted for both surface-to-surface uh, -surface transportation <clears throat> between point locations on the Earth essentially moving people between places in no greater than one hour, and there's some, some wonderful videos showing all that. The entire survivability of the system itself requires a retro descent. I think we are decades and decades away from the general public being able to hop on a rocket ship that can take you from here to Australia in an hour and come down on the capability of a retro rocket having to work every single time or kill the entire yeah. complement of people aboard the vehicle. <laughs> Agreed. There's a technical credibility. So if you take out that component and say, okay, that's maybe a little bit wishful thinking, a little bit far down the road still, what have you got left in terms of the development cost? Why would you duplicate a vehicle that can duplicate what by then will be an SLS system up and running. And, and Musk is talking about initially repeating the grasshopper 
tests that he did initially for recovering falcon stages for the BFR, <coughs> starting those next year. Um, some comments have him starting it this year, but it's, it's probably going to be next year. He's going to be developing this thing right alongside SLS with its, with its payload complement already being designed for SLS. So a whole space program is developing through government-funded programs, which is centered on SLS, Iran, and the Deep Space Gateway. And, of course, all the international partners have signed up to this particular path. It's not simply just NASA talking on its own. Mm. It's the fact that, that Europe is helping to build the Iran spacecraft, and that is unique. The first time an American manned space vehicle is, is not being wholly built in the United States. And at the end of last year and in January of 2018, the space station partners signed up to this integrated pathway. And the interagency group has just issued its report with regard to how all those sequential stages will occur and how the strengths of the different space agencies responsible in the partnerships for the ISS will translate their cooperative activities across into this new deep space operation. Mm. And, and so I think that Musk may look credible, but if you just stack SLS, BFR, then, yep, you know, why would you? But when you build in all what's being invested in SLS, it's not just money or technology. It is an entire future program based on that. Mm. And the president has already said he wants NASA to make the leadership. And Congress has agreed because we may have and in, you know, there's probably quite high stakes. We'll have a one term presidency with with Donald Trump. Um, Congress is very much behind this. Congress has, has been the one that put SLS and Iran back in the picture when Trump's predecessor, Obama, completely abandoned that entire tranche of hardware. Congress put it back in. So while the president has been very vocal on what he wants, none of what he's proposed in his budget is likely to get past Congress. And the only bits that are are that he's got strong funding for SLS and Orion still, but it's the commercial competitors with each other that have a very rock... There's no competition that the commercial people are there. The competition in the commercial sector is between themselves. It's not between mm. new space and old space. We, and and, and we, 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 we shouldn't really call this new space and old space because the two are marching in synergy together. Mm. And each needs the other. And there's going to need to be a certain degree of subsidy played from national governments to support their companies that can then take off and run and return to the government taxes from their increased profits, which more than compensate for the money the government put in to begin with. Yeah, I, I really, really liked your analysis on the... Um... <laughs> <laughs> of that i've been using it all week because the one thing that's been depressing me so much is the some of the newspaper articles particularly from the guardian of all places that have had, that have these ludicrous you know the, the the economic false dichotomy uh fallacy about you know how can you spend yeah. money on these rockets when there's children dying of cancer etc etc and i just think uh, but that that i i do think that's one of the most stunning 
arguments ever. Look, the, the, the tax return is, is greater than the subsidies. So it's, it's a yes, complete yes. non-starter before yes, you even yes. get into the fallacy yes. element yes. of it. Yes, that's right. That's right. And it's cruel on those who think there may be hope that if they stop this, they can get money for that. Yeah, oh no, absolutely. It's it's yes, it's, yes. it's just totally ridiculous. I, one little thing that uh, that also has been mentioned about Falcon Heavy is that maybe yes. SpaceX have pushed on with it because they want it for themselves. That they're going to be using it to maybe launch their um, internet network or maybe actually to take stuff and start their Mars missions. Is that a possibility? Well, I don't think Falcon Heavy can support much with regard to Mars missions um, other than very, very capable and very heavy unmanned space vehicles. It could put four tons on the surface of Mars, and that's a capability that may very well be picked up later by NASA itself or by other space agencies. It may very well be that we will see the time, because Europe doesn't have anything in that capability, I can very well see the day when Roscosmos and ESA get together and produce, especially if Mars 2020 is a success, um, that they uh, that they actually produce a very, very heavy lander system for a very complex and maybe um, sample return mission, which, we, which we've been waiting for for 30 years. Um, but I, yes, I think there are very, very important jobs that, and roles that can be carried out with that. But I can't see Falcon Heavy dialing into any Musk plan to send people to Mars. This is no. going to require a very considerable amount of lift capability. So uh, I, I, I tend to, to take Musk at his word because he never lies. Um, he might exaggerate a few things, <laughs> but he never lies. And, and he has unequivocally said, without any compromise, we're done with Falcon Heavy. If it's got a use, it's there. We've demonstrated. It's a demonstrator flight. Mm. We can do this. We can do that. And if you want it, come and buy it because we've got them and we can run them off. We can run them off up to six a year, eight a year. But it's clearly not part of his fundamental core plan. And I think that's sensible to say that. So I trust him on that yeah. because, you know, I think, I think he is an honest, straightforward guy, prone to exaggeration, as all entrepreneurs are, as, and, and especially when they're convincing other people to get behind something that they're actually paying with their own money because it's nice to have people follow through and make your dreams come true especially if you're paying with your own checkbook yeah. but he's he's already spent over a billion on falcon 9 and falcon heavy uh, split pretty much between the two and the falcon 9 has really been the one that's come good and made all the money for him but um he's not building vehicles that can take humans to mars uh dragon 2 can't take people to mars mm. it's 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 an earth return capsule and, and good and, and, and fantastic. And, and, and we need it because we need that kind of capability to, to return um, maybe people. Uh, maybe there's an emergency. You know, one of the things that's being talked about on the international plan is if we've got the deep space gateway, we need a lifeboat vehicle. You're not going to park an Orion out there 24-7, 365 days a year, but you may very well park a Dragon mm. and you may have that as the lifeboat. So it's got, there are numerous little applications. I 
feel right now, my own personal view, and, and I guess I've been involved in this industry for 50 years now, but looking at the entire spread of what's coming up, what's being accomplished, and what's promised, I think that it's, it's inevitable we're going to have to rely on two, two vital things for all of our future space exploration aspirations in deep space, and that is international cooperation, because no one nation now can do it alone without spending exorbitant amount of money of the percentages we experienced in Apollo, and those days are never going to come back. And the second is the commercial sector. We need it dramatically. The three of them, commercial, the international, and the strong leadership goal from a nation that is spending 50% of the world's invested government money on space itself and NASA is spending approximately as much as all the rest of the world put together on the peaceful exploration space. Um, that's a leadership role which is useful, but those other factors are vital. I can't see any future for one of these companies, SpaceX or whoever, to go spearing off on its own and trying to get to Mars. It would be folly. I probably think, I think I'd definitely agree with that analysis. It's... Well, you don't have to, Matt. I mean, you know, we, we all can be wrong, but it's just a, it's just a gut feeling I have. It, the numbers just don't work out. No, I, I agree, and I think it's, it's one of those things. It's just too enormous a task, isn't it, to, to set out to yes. do something that's, <laughs> that's, that's clearly astronomically yes. expensive. And, yes. and at the end of the day, SpaceX is a commercial company, so it has to yes. keep its eye on, on being commercial. Yes. But that said, if 2018 delivers two things for SpaceX, which is the successful Falcon 9 Block 5 version and the Dragon 2, if those two things uh, are pulled off with with no errors or Mm. or big mistakes, Mm. it's going to be a phenomenally successful year, isn't it, for SpaceX? That's going to be pretty incredible. Yes, it is. And I think uh, more power to them because we do need that. We do need um, a U.S. Um, human spaceflight vehicle. It's going to be 2023 before Orion flies with a crew. I think that's fairly obvious now. And uh, I think that it is, it is necessary to demonstrate an indigenous U.S. capability, if only to get diversity and to flight prove and qualify through mission success a vehicle that can be used in the next generation of deep space vehicles even even for the rescue lifeboat role um where it could be anchored to the deep space gateway because the capability there or the the provision for crews at, at distances from earth that's the next big challenge is to transpose what we've learned and operated with on iss which now is becoming routine um, if you can ever say spaceflight is routine, uh, transpose that out to uh, to the vicinity of the moon. And even if we don't immediately go for moon landers, which moon landers will be, I think, commercially developed, I, I don't see NASA having the money at all, even if NASA gets out of the space station program in terms of a federal agency in 2024. I cannot see that they'll have the money uh, to be able to develop 
the lander to go from moon orbit down to the surface. And that is already being pushed as a potential commercial project, much as the cargo lift and the human lift to ISS was treated by Congress as a commercial investment for that. The next commercial investment will be for an Altair moon lander. Yeah. Now, talking of the ISS, uh, we've just right. we've just seen the NASA budget come through. Yeah. We should yeah. quick we should quickly talk about that, even though I haven't really right. had time, and I'm right. sure and I'm sure you haven't had that much time to uh, mm. to, to to really digest it. But it's it's it, it makes pretty grim reading for the ISS. I think the thing to bear in mind about this budget, which headlines really says that there's a slight increase over last year but then the real the real the real killer in the budget is that there's a fixed dollar projection because all budgets run to a five-year run out in order to project they they go for authorization and appropriation for the fiscal year concerned and american financial years are in advance of the calendar year by three months so they're supposed to start on the first of october this is a highly disruptive presidency uh, a highly contested set of program objectives right across government for Congress. We've got midterm elections this year. It is very likely that we will see a Democrat or the, the House, um, when I say lost to the Democrats, I mean as far as the White House is concerned. And it's likely that, that just on the cusp, the Republicans may hold the Senate. But if we do get these shifts and with the kind of um, difficulty that Trump is finding in not being able to get bills through, um, which is consistently failing to do, um, then this budget, you might as well just tear it up now because it ain't going to happen, folks. And it, it is going to be very different. He tried the two big things, the five-year run out as projected by the White House after a slight lift in 2019, notionally beginning 1st of October 2018, um, it's a flatline budget at under 20 billion, which is about 0.4% of total federal expenditure, dropping down to about 0.3%, dropping down by a third by the time you get to the end of the five year runoff. Because when you look at the projected inflators over five years, a static budget means you're actually absorbing cuts. Mm. Because the bills NASA is going to have to pay year on year to the contractors, you know, it builds very little. NASA itself builds very, very little. It pays for other people to build. And the contractors that do the main work need to pay. Their inflation goes up, as everything does. And so a fixed budget means you actually get less and less each year. That's the first rub. The second is that the assumption is under the Trump presidency, and again, with the caveat, I don't expect this to get through Congress, um, <laughs> that the United States abandons the space stations and turns it over to a commercial operation in concert with the international partners. But the problem there is that now the international partners are getting access to the space station by building American hardware. The service module that's being built for Orion is not being paid for. The Europeans are paying for the American Orion service module. But they're getting opportunities in kind, mm. as it were, by allowing ESA astronauts to fly to the station. 
And that kind of relationship, which means that NASA is getting something that it's not having to pay for, has to be sustained if the follow-on successes for the Deep Space Gateway are to hold good. So if the White House convinces Congress, which I think is about a, a 20% chance of it, of it doing so, to pull the plug on government funding of ISS in order to put more money into deep space operations, it will be counterproductive because essentially it will pull the plug on the international cooperation that the American government needs to advance the forward cause of deep space, which can only be done by international agreement because it's just too expensive for NASA on its own to pay for. So it's a badly thought through rationale that you simply dump space station. And the Europeans, the Japanese and the Canadians and the Russians had already said they want to continue, give it another four-year run to at least 2028. The other aspect about the budget is that yet again, the Trump administration is trying to completely remove all funds for, for space education out mm -hmm. of the NASA budget. And on, on balance, this sounds a fairly good thing because what they say is all education should be wrapped up into the Department of Education instead of it being all fragmented out among all these different government agencies, pull it all in into a central pool. But unfortunately, the central education programs are not picking up on the grants. And, and I know many friends of mine in the States have advanced their own careers through NASA education grants, which NASA alone funds brilliant students to go forward and work on space projects. Now, the Department of Education in, in the States is not going to do that and hasn't been doing it. So if Congress, unlike last year when it immediately reinstated the education fund to NASA and said, Sorry, Mr. President, we're not allowing this. And, and this does actually show the fact that the president actually, the real bottom line is that he had actually very little power. He can make as much noise as he likes and get as many headlines. But when the press move on to other things, they don't follow through with the news that, oops, that's been reversed in Congress. Mm. And it's not happening the way it was shock horror hailed to be. And so the pulling of that fund from NASA's budget was reinserted. Another one that was reinserted was the Trump administration, when it came in a year ago, it completely took out all of the climate research work at NASA. Mm. That was put back straight by Congress again. Now it's out the budget again. So we're going to go through more and more months and months and months of wrangling and arguing, and Congress will only put it all the way back again. So this back and forth bickering and this tension is getting to the American electorate very strongly. And there are a lot of serious, sensible people in universities, research establishments, and across the nation, where there's a sort of seeing that there's no coherence between the White House and Congress, it's just becoming a bloodbath and a battleground, which is bringing peripheral casualties in those areas and among those people it was supposed to help. And mm. it's telling, it's telling indeed, that in U.S. government agencies that are directed by the White House as to what they must do, the popularity poll for the Trump administration is 6%. 6%? And that's official. Oh, wow. That's, and there's huge... It's unprecedented. And, and I, I, cannot, I cannot tell you who said this, but, but I'm quite happy to go on air as saying this, that a very dear friend of mine, 
uh, very deeply involved. And, and he was a Rhodes Scholar in the UK, and he's very deeply involved in, in, in aspects of the space program in the United States, who said in response to a question from me, what the hell is going on over there? He said, I don't know. Just tell them we're all on drugs. That's the only thing that makes sense. (laughs) 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 And so it is a very, very fragile system at the moment. And we can spend a lot of time talking through the minutiae of a budget that, quite frankly, is about as firm and established as blotting paper in a snowstorm. Glad to hear that it's it's not going to get anywhere because <laughs> it looks pretty well, depressing. Well, I, I, I hope I don't. I hope you're not back here nine months later saying, tut, 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 David, what was that you said in February? <laughs> <laughs> it's all gone wrong. Yeah, I know. I, I'm sure. <laughs> we'll uh, see, but I think it's a fair bet that, you know, you can, I'm prepared to stand on what I said. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. What did you think of, what did you think of that chat with, with David? Hmm? He's just incredible. And I'm really excited about the fact that he's going to be a regular contributor. That is going to be so awesome. Yeah, that that is that's a real privilege. David is certainly one of the most respected and renowned space experts in the world. We only talk to the big guns now, Matt. Big that's time. It. Big time. No more small fry. Before we go, I've got one space fact for you. Hit me. Have you ever heard of a thing called an analemma? No, what's this? It's a special shape that the sun draws in the sky over the year. Right. If you went outside and on exactly the same time every day took a photo in exactly the same position of the sky with the sun in yeah. it uh, and then mapped them all over together, you will see the shape of a figure of eight uh, drawn, it, drawn in the sky. And that figure of eight changes shape depending where you are in the world when you're taking these pictures. Right. But, but for example, in, uh, from Greenwich, you'll get a figure of eight with... The, with the with the very lopsided so the top bit will be quite small and the bottom bit will be very uh big so the smaller loop at the top and the bigger loop at the bottom uh and they they'll be placed at different angles depending where you are in the world right uh, and it's caused by the fact that uh, earth has a, a slightly eccentric orbit and the fact that the Earth is obviously tilted as well. Mad. And you that. often see these things appearing on globes, for example. So a, a, a globe mm. will have them. And the word itself comes from the construction of a sundial because you need to have analemma to, to sort of almost calibrate a sundial so that you can uh, make uh, adjustments, slight adjustments, so that you get the uh, timing right. Now... The space fact that I want to give you is an analemma on Mars is a teardrop shape. That is so cool. I want to now look at loads of images. They're actually quite useful if you plot the dates on and actually annotate what you're doing because they can be used to find the dates of the earliest and latest sunrises and sunsets of the year because those don't actually happen on the solstices so um you can use the analemma as as the way of determining those it's really cool blimey now that 
is a space fact. Yeah, I'd never heard of them before. Now, well, let's put it up. I'll tell you what else is cool, Matt. Yeah, go on then. Subscribing to this podcast. I was just about to say, what what do I have to do to subscribe, Jamie? Well, you just head over to Interplanetary. Is it interplanetary.org, Matt? It is interplanetary.org.uk. .uk. Don't forget the UK like I did. Um, and, you know, that's all you need to know there about our merch store, the infamous merch store, um, and uh, how you can become a Patreon. Ah, yes, and Patreon. Talking of Patreon, obviously, if you want to go directly to the Patreon page, Patreon forward slash interplanetary. But it's very easy to get to our Patreon page via our, via our website. We've literally been overwhelmed by how great our, thir- our first month. You're all superstars. We've been absolutely brilliant. We've, had a, we've got a couple new Patreons this week. Who have we got? Two new Patreons at Skylon level, no less, none less. What? Are Richard Swain and, I hope I pronounce this right, Karal Sim. Thank you, guys. We will not let you down. Absolutely. So your podcast T-shirts. T-shirts and the thank you notes are on their way. And, uh, yes. and your, I've, I've noticed they're already in our Discord space discussion page. So that's going to be great. So Patreon, do it. We love it. All right, guys. Well, we'll see you next week. Take care of yourself. The Interplanetary Podcast. Putting Putting the ace ace back into into space. Let's go to Venus. Let's go to Mars. Bye. Bye. Bye.